This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Happy Labor Day to you. Hope you're enjoying the last of the long weekend. We'll go to two of our Fight Back commentators on American and global affairs. Joining us on the phone, political commentator and conservative pundit from the U.S., Paul Paselli. Hi, Paul. Hello. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks. Great to have you along as well. And we really appreciate you taking the time with us on this Labor Day, on this long weekend. No problem. Pleasure to be here. Well, and we'll get to, we also have Michael Tobe on the line, a Canadian political commentator and former advisor to former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. We're still getting Michael on the line, or is he with us? Okay, so we'll just get him up. But in the meantime, Paul, let's start with the motivation behind this latest provocation. What does North Korea want? What is Kim Jong-un trying to prove? Why is he testing a nuclear bomb? Sorry, a lot of questions, but we, we need the answers. Getting a busy signal phone. There it goes. Okay. Um, what does he want? You know, that's, the, that's, that's kind of the million-dollar question all the pundits uh, here in the States are asking. Um, I did hear one... Uh, you know, one viable theory, I thought, and this has been floated by a couple of um, uh, South Asian and Korean Peninsula experts, and it maybe rings a little true. Um, um, I have heard that um, one theory is that he is looking for, first and primarily, a formal end to the Korean War. Now, a lot of folks might not know, and some do, but a lot might not know, that the Korean War is technically not over. Um, there was a ceasefire, uh, an armistice, uh, but technically the Korean War has never officially ended. That's why you have thousands of U.S. troops and thousands of North Korean troops uh, staring at each other over the boundary lines between um, the U.S., between the North and South, and you have about 40,000 U.S. troops there. So um, it could be that he wants a formal end to the Korean War, and then after that, he might also want, from some reading I'm doing, a formal declaration and recognition of the North by the South uh, of, of being a sovereign state and no longer a rogue state or a breakaway type of state. That could be it, because beyond that, you have to ask yourself, what would be the advantage of him attacking the U.S.? There simply is no advantage. And Pyongyang and a good part of North Korea, even if they retaliated against the South, which would be awful, uh, would be uh, just pummeled by a U.S. attack in ours. So he's looking for a legitimacy. That is what uh, a lot of people have told me, that a very good friend of mine is an international relations expert. Uh, she's worked for the State Department before, and, and she likes that theory, too, 
that this is his way to flex his muscle at home to maybe push back on insurgents who may say, hey, you know, this totalitarian thing is not serving our people. Maybe we should have a further dialogue with the South. And maybe this is his way of saying, well, I will get us the recognition that we finally deserve. In terms of getting that recognition that he wants and feels that he deserves, is this something the United States can give into on some level? Or is, is, is the morality of the way he organizes and rules his country, is that too much uh, of an obstacle in, in, in him getting that, that on a wish list? Well, again, that's a great question, and it's no secret that people here who study our history or if if our fine friends in Canada study U.S. history, you all know that the U.S. Um, has dealt and in, in, in still deals um, with some very seedy and less than desirable people around the world. So there's that question, you know, do you capitulate here, which is a good one. And, and yet, in, in, um, in statements, it might be hard. I mean, you just had President Trump, I believe, saying earlier today in a statement or a tweet, uh, telling South Korea, for example, and the new president of South Korea, uh, not to capitulate or not to appease the North, because uh, I guess the new leader in South Korea has much less of a hard line against the North or is willing to engage them. So that's kind of a double-edged sword there. Um, you know, the countries that we do have trade with and we do have relationships with, many of them are far from, uh, you know, choir boy or choir girl entities here. We're speaking with Paul Paselli, conservative commentator and political pundit from the United States. And joining us now on the line is Michael Tobe, Canadian political co- commentator, as well as a former advisor to former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Always nice to have you with us, Michael. Oh, thanks very much, Jane. You've been listening along. Uh, your thoughts from a Canadian perspective on the continuing provocation by uh, North Korea? Yeah, well, obviously, it's a very difficult situation. And while I caught most of what Paul had to say, I didn't catch the very beginning of it. Um, This issue has been coming to a head for a long period of time. I mean, tensions with North Korea have existed at a more heightened level since around the days of Bill Clinton. And obviously, in the past few years, under the last two presidents, Barack Obama and now Donald Trump, we have obviously entered a very new stage in the way we have to think about dealing with North Korea and whether there should be further action or inaction when it comes to our relations with them. And obviously, it's it's interesting. Actually, Mr. Obama, uh, before he left office, uh, warned Mr. Trump that this would be the big one of the biggest issues, if not the biggest issue you're going to have to face when you become president. That was leaked out a few months after Mr. Trump became president. And quite frankly, not that I really agree with Mr. Obama on much. I really didn't over eight years. He was right about this, and it's a very rational position because the North Koreans, although most of their quote-unquote nuclear missile tests, if they really actually had any, or certainly their ICBM tests, which we know that they've done, have primarily been failures up until very, very recently. And the success of one ICBM this test this summer actually proves that the North Koreans, if nothing else, have moved quite a bit in terms of the power and intensity of the missiles that they can send off. And more importantly, from a geographic perspective, they can go much, much further. 
Ergo, it's understandable why Donald Trump is talking tough right now, because the time is to talk tough right now. And we have to hope that either Kim Jong-un will back down, as he has typically done, or he and his father have been wont to do over the past few decades, or whether we have to take this to another stage, which, as General Mattis recently said in his press conference, doesn't mean that we're going to call for the annihilation of North Korea. No one is suggesting that at this point but that a military strike or military options are on the table if the North Koreans keep beating the war drums, so to speak. So we are at a very, very different point in time, and I don't think it matters whether you come from an American perspective, like my other, per- like the other colleague on the radio, or a Canadian perspective. I think as North Americans, we have to realize that this issue has been coming for a long time, and it didn't matter who was president. It could have been Mr. Trump. It could have been Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. It could have been anybody someone has to deal with us and pretty soon. What do you think about the comments made uh, just this morning by Nikki Haley at the emergency meeting of the U.N. Security Council? She uh, says that enough is enough, that we've kicked the can down the road long enough, that Mm -hmm. it it seems as if Kim Jong-un is is trying to get a war started. Uh, What do what is the message behind those comments? Um, I certainly think that she said the right things. It's a perspective that most conservatives, no matter where they live on the planet, have sort of believed for a while. And I think there is some truth in the statement that we have been kicking the can down the road as much as we can, whether it be a Democratic president in office or a Republican president in office, because no one obviously wants to deal with such a a difficult issue that could obviously lead to war, it could lead to destruction, it could lead to death, etc. And we understand that. I mean, that's actually very logical. So what Nikki Haley is saying, some people will say maybe inflaming the tensions of the United Nations. But on the other hand, I think it's important that the U.S. and other Western democracies get on board with the idea that we can't keep our heads in the sand any longer. It's now time to deal with North Korea in some fashion. And if they back down again and we have to start the whole thing up once again, well, fine, then we'll do that. But if they're not willing to back down, then we're going to have to take a very different point of action. And I think Ms. Haley was right to make the, those points and in that type of language. 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. We'd like you to weigh in on what's happening. We certainly weren't going into the Labor Day weekend thinking that we would talk about this heavy topic on the holiday. But in light of comments yesterday by James Mattis and uh, most importantly in light of the latest provocation by North Korea. It's a discussion we need to have globally. We need to all be aware of what's happening. And by speaking with people like Michael Tobe and Paul Paselli, we are getting information which will help us make those informed dis, uh, decisions and opinions uh, about what's happening. So let's let's talk, gentlemen, about what the United States can do next. It seems, Paul, that the president is at least indicating that he will cut off doing business with countries that do business with North Korea. So which countries are on this list and what does this mean? Well, you know, there are numerous countries on the list. Um, you know, people don't, and forgive me, I don't have the exact list in front of me. No problem. As, Mike, as Michael probably knows, um, and as your callers probably know, um, even though there has been constant economic pressure on North Korea for 24 years now, going back to the Clinton administration, as uh, your other guest said, 
Um, there are numerous countries who still do business with North Korea, primarily with uh, crude oil, with uh, fish uh, products, with uh, other various products. So I find that tactic or that threat very interesting, um, noting that, okay, it kind of goes back to uh, George Bush's pronouncement during the early days post 9-11. It kind of echoes the, you're either with us or against us. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing I heard of, that now if we pressure other countries who do business with North Korea, maybe those countries can uh, can uh, uh, can exert their own economic power, and you have a de facto, perhaps, worldwide embargo against North Korea. Now, what that does, who knows? Does that uh, embolden Kim either, uh, even more, or does that really set the seeds internally? Perhaps, uh, because you know there have to be some people internally in North Korea who say, wait a minute, we know this is dangerous to do, but this guy might be killing us as a nation. So does that embolden whatever opposition there might be in North Korea to say, you know, the shelves are bare here. We are starving as a country. There must be a better way. Uh, Michael, we know that China, I read this this morning, China imports from North Korea, uh, obviously, and exports $40 billion a month in goods to the United States. China China is in an interesting position here, um, most notably. Yes, they most certainly are. I mean, what is interesting over time is that, you know, China probably exerts the most influence over North Korea or up until recently. We've now had some statements, and Paul, the other guest, I'm sure, is aware of this, that uh, President Trump has directly said in some of his meetings and discussions with the Chinese president that the influence China had over North Korea in terms of telling them to, in this case, lay down your weapons, you know, call off the dogs, head back to your corner, and we'll deal with this another time. This seems to have ended to some degree, which means that either Mr. Trump is being, you know, is correct or incorrect in his assessment, but let's say he is correct, hypothetically, it actually means that China could actually bark orders to North Korea, and the North Koreans are not necessarily listening, or at least not listening the same way they used to. Now, again, we don't know if this is true or false. Unfortunately, things with North Korea, no matter how many articles and books and things that have been written about this little totalitarian regime for so long and for so many decades, a lot of it, although we have information, is mostly speculation and it seems to be evergreen. It's always changing. But yes, I agree with you that China obviously is in a very unusual position based on its relations with the U.S. and North Korea. Much the same way for many years, for example, Russia, or the old, when it was called the old Soviet Union, had a relationship with North Korea, which has unfortunately, over the years, because they exerted some influence too, it's really sort of come to an end for the most part in recent years. I think it's very problematic, and I don't know what the future exactly is in terms of North Korea, except to isolate them more and more. It's not the best way to do things. I certainly concur with that. I would hope that there would be a better solution. The problem is I don't know how you can have a rational conversation with Kim Jong-un and his senior advisors when we've never been able to really have rational conversations with the North Koreans in the past. And I think the Chinese government is fighting the same thing. Okay, and that's what I wanted to ask you, Paul. Uh, Has China had those conversations with North Korea, or is it all just uh, diplomatic uh, posturing from a distance? 
Well, I'm sure that you've had both. I think the diplomatic statements are for public consumption. I mean, those are always evident for statements that are made from uh, the Chinese and North Korean news agencies. But I think people would be naive to think that uh, there aren't any deeper discussions that, that go on between the two countries simply because of the trade numbers that you pointed out uh, previously, the, the, the millions and billions of dollars in trade that go on between the two company, uh, countries. And let's not forget, too, that the main uh, fear of a lot of international experts and South Asian experts and Chinese experts is what would happen in case we do have any sort of an incursion or an attack on North Korea. What happens to the north of that country on the border with China? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've spoken to some people and read some estimates where you could have one to two million refugees suddenly pouring into the south part of China if any part of hostilities ever broke, broke out. And, and I did read where there has been some reinforcement of Chinese forces on that border in a just-in-case mode. So I'm sure there are people... You know, in, 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 in the Chinese government saying, hey, wait a minute, uh, you, know, you know, we may want to help you, but taking a million or so of your people in the mass exodus is not going to be good for either one of us. The other thing I think we have to consider here, folks, and I'm sure Michael would agree, is mm-hmm. any, sort of, any sort of hostilities, uh, God forbid, that would break out between the U.S. and North Korea will also have an immediate effect on South Korea. And the numbers, just from regular artillery attacks from the north into the south, we've all seen, are staggering. The number of people that could be injured or killed Mm -hmm. in just the first hours. Well, even for the people of Japan, analysts are saying that they could be exposed to devastating casualties. And, 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 yeah, sorry, go ahead, Paul. No, I was going to say, absolutely. And again, Japan, even over the past few days now, has made noise about purchasing cruise missiles and really moving their stance from a defensive pacifist state to uh, you know, a state that, that says, listen, this is a new reality. We must face down an enemy. I know we've been different since World War II, but it's the present now. Michael, now to you. Um, And and so we've talked about, is the United States going to war? And based on these casualties uh, in the other nations, uh, that is not something the United States is going to take lightly as a civilized nation. What happens if North Korea launches an attack? So we've got the anti-missile defense system in place. Correct. Uh, So, in effect, if they launch the first salvo, the U.S. can take out their bullets, so to speak. Yes, actually, it'd be a lot easier for, pardon me, for President Trump to actually retaliate if the North Koreans do something as foolish as that. And in many ways, I think that the U.S. is probably hoping, not that they want any sort of a conflict, nobody wants a conflict, but if there is going to be one, they would much rather that the North Koreans take the lead than the United States because it would be easier to build an international coalition mm-hmm. against North Korea in an example like that. Actually, it'd be very simple to do. I, again, I think that a lot of Western democracies are beginning to realize that, yes, there may not be a war tomorrow. It may not be next week, next month, even this year. But something is brewing, something is building, and there's something different going on in North Korea in terms of the way, A, they're testing missiles, and B, in the 
that they're acting when people are sort of making comments about them saying, you know, enough testing in the Sea of Japan, enough of this trouble that you're having with South Korea, enough of the issues with China, you have to start acting like a world power or, or basically some sort of a normalized power or we're just going to continue to isolate you. There seems to be a difference, at least in the, the reality of politics today, that the North Koreans are clearly not playing from the same handbook that they had before. Obviously, the U.S. and the international community cannot do the same thing, as Paul alluded to. We have to also hope that the U.S., South Korea, and Japan have, over time, built some sort of an alliance. And I don't know exactly what. No one would be entirely sure. And hopefully, whatever it is, it would remain secretive. But I think that there has to be something in place, including with weapons and other sort of things, including, as you suggested, missile defense, etc., to ensure that if the North Koreans do attack, that they are prepared and they are ready to combat them. And I think they are ready. Again, they don't want to enter this stage. We don't want to have a war. This is not desirable, on, at least in terms of the U.S. side and the international side. But if it's desirable on the North Korean side, as awful as this sounds, we have to be prepared to attack. Right. So it seems like the, the most cautious way to go at this, the most responsible way to go at it, Paul, for the Americans is to continue to isolate this rogue nation and be on the ready if they are stupid enough to launch an attack. Yes, absolutely. And and, and I think Michael's correct. And, and, and also, you have to go back to what Secretary of Defense James Mattis said about two weeks ago, as I recall. And he said something very stark. He said, listen, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he did say if an armed conflict was to break out between the U.S. and North Korea, with perhaps South Korea and Japan joining in, he said you would see uh, you would see destruction and casualties mm. that the world has not seen since the worst days of World War II. And yeah. one other aspect I want to bring up here that I think also plays into this, folks, is the fact that here at home. I think the North Koreans see that Donald Trump's base on a good day is still only about 35 to 40 percent of the American electorate right now. And I think that for, to some extent that may be playing into their aggressive actions here, especially with the fact that even though his base is only 35 to 40 percent of solid support, I think the North sees that you don't see... It's starting to change a little bit now, but you don't see universal support from the Congress as to some of the things that Donald Trump says. And I believe that no matter what the nation is, no matter what the conflict is, I think nations on either side of a conflict tend to look now internally at what type of support the leader of an opposition nation is getting as to how far they can push the envelope. Excellent. An informative conversation and uh, analysis from you both. Thank you very much again for your time on this holiday. Thank you. Michael Tobe, Canadian political commentator, former advisor to former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and Paul Paselli, conservative pundit and political commentator stateside. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.